Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Tom Standage, Deputy Editor at The Economist. In this Future Gazing podcast series, we consider provocative prophecies and speculative scenarios to gain a different perspective on the present and help us better prepare for what might come next. In the spring of 2020, the doors of stadiums, music venues and conference centres around the world closed. The buzz of live music, sports fans cheering and business networking fell silent. Organisers and promoters had to take new approaches during the pandemic. But as these venues start to reopen, which of these changes will persist? I think many of the organisers are also going to create really different viewing platforms in seeing these events. Why are live performances so essential to the entire music business? Across the industry, the absence of live music has an absolute impact on pretty much everyone. And will the rise of virtual events permanently change the way conferences are held? Being part of a conference, being part of the community that surrounds that conference, that's something you can do online. And that actually works really, really well. But let's start by taking to the field. Watching a football match without a crowd of spectators is a very different experience. Instead of the roar of the crowd, you can hear the echoing shouts of the players and the coaches on the sidelines. It's an eerie reminder of just how empty these stadiums are and how the lack of cheering and chanting from fans lessens the spectacle, even if you're used to watching from home or in a bar. Those empty seats don't just change the viewing experience, though. Taking away the crowd has a remarkable influence on what happens on the field and on the final score. Since lockdowns began, there's been an unprecedented number of away wins in the Premier League, the top tier of English football. Removing the crowd clearly reduces the home side advantage. But how exactly? The Economist's data gurus have teamed up with 21st Club, a football consultancy, to figure out what's going on. What we've found is that by looking at thousands of games before and after the pandemic is that refereeing bias seems to disappear entirely. James Tozer is a data journalist at The Economist. Before the pandemic, what tended to happen is that the referees would give more fouls against the away teams and more yellow and red cards to the away teams. And what happened is as soon as you took fans out of the stadium and you sort of played in silence, that bias against the away team disappeared. So now home and away teams get almost exactly the same number of fouls and and cards. So that suggests that part of home advantage in a crowd setting is caused by the referee being influenced by the baying mass, sort of encouraging them to penalise the away team. Then if you look at the other aspects of the game, if you look at, for example, how many shots and goals teams score, there is some effect. So what you see is that home teams used to have a lot more shots and goals than the away team. That effect has diminished, but it's still there. So they still have slightly more goals and shots. And when you combine those two things, what it means is that home teams still win slightly more often than away teams. But that effect has diminished slightly. So something like 70% of that advantage overall remains when you, when you talk about how often teams win. So now that we know all of this, do you think this will change anything after the pandemic? So it will be really interesting to see how it affects refereeing. Maybe there'll be more of a sort of education of referees about how to, to counterweight this. And the one thing, the thing I think will be more interesting from the crowds is how it changes the spectacle for fans full stop. 
The one thing certainly in the short to medium term that will change a lot, and this is why governments were so concerned about it, to my understanding, is it's not so much the mingling in the stadiums because you're in an outdoor setting. I think what they're really concerned about is the mingling of fans on public transport. Uh, you know, and anyone who's anyone who's been a season ticket holder or has spent a lot of time going to games, part of the, the experience is everyone cramming into the trains and, and singing their songs on the way to the ground. And that's a really important part of the communal experience of sport. And it might be that governments and local authorities, administrators go to extra levels to sort of space that out and to reduce the, the time that people spend sort of crowded together before going to the games. Getting crowds back into stadiums is going to be a massive organisational undertaking and it will have to happen gradually. But major sporting events have been staged in some parts of the world during the pandemic, sometimes even with spectators, albeit in reduced numbers or in socially distanced bubbles. One place that has hosted several big sporting events in recent months is Abu Dhabi, which has staged a Formula One race, an Indian Premier League cricket tournament and mixed martial arts events for the Ultimate Fighting Championship. We are continuously learning more about this virus on a daily basis. And from where we started and where we are today, the world's in a very different place. Mohammed Khalifa Al-Mubarak is the chairman of the Abu Dhabi Department of Culture and Tourism. When the concept of bubbles started to emerge, we took it upon ourselves to truly take that uh, blueprint and see how we can enhance and make it feasible for both. And we worked rigorously with all the entities to make sure that basically we ticked every single box, whether it's Formula One or the Abu Dhabi Cycling Tour or the Tennis Open or even the Gulf Championship and the Indian Premier League Cricket. Was a distinct difference between us and many other places is we had people flying in from Brazil, from Russia, from the United Kingdom, from the US, and a lot of these places were right smack into some of the most difficult times they've had during the pandemic. Now, specifically talking about our last fight island here in Abu Dhabi, where we had the McGregor fight, our indoor arena is close to 18,000 spectators. During the event, we had around 30% occupancy for the event itself. We made sure that everybody had to be tested prior to arrival, and we had a mandate of under 48-hour testing. And we basically use technology to our benefit. So the days of you sitting down, watching an event and waiting for your, uh, for your beverage or you going and standing in line, now everything is technology controlled. So through a tap of your phone, you can tell that, you know what, I'm going to go pick up my beer and it's going to be ready in two minutes. Or you can have another service where you potentially pay a slightly more for the, for the same bottle of beer, but it's basically, it comes to you. So we've taken into account every box to make sure that the level of the experience watching these live events are still extremely high. So the big question I think everyone is thinking about this year is, is the Olympics. What advice would you offer your counterparts in Japan as they prepare for the Olympics? I think obviously the Japanese have announced that at the moment, it's only going to be for internal uptake fans coming specifically from borders of internal Japan. I think there is an opportunity and a safe opportunity to bring guests from outside. I think similar to what we are working with some of the the airlines and IAPA on potentially having vaccine passports. Obviously, like I said, the testing regimen has changed drastically. Today, you can receive PCR testing in under 45 minutes. And obviously, there is even faster coming in the near future where you can test almost every single individual entering these stadiums. So I think technology will, will play a big role. But I think with the combination of vaccine passports plus quality 
testing, I think you should be good to go in the very near future. And I think the Japanese uh, uh, might want to look into that. Assuming we do get to go back to something like normal in the next year or two, what do you think will be the long-term impact? I think, especially for the short term, I think testing prior to events is going to be a norm. I think many of the organizers are also going to create really different viewing platforms in seeing these events where you can create these sort of private viewings where you're kind of secluded, like you and your group are secluded, but you're still a part of a greater event. Similar to what you see right now in football stadiums or soccer stadiums in the UK where you have these boxes, is there a potential way where you create these mini bubbles within the stadium itself where friends and family could basically interact freely, maybe even without face masks, but under a controlled environment. These are things that I think we're all studying together at the moment. And I think one thing that has come out of this pandemic is how important is it to be working together? And I think working together have found solutions in having events like the UFC, like Formula One and, and, and others. Did you experiment with any ways to make remote audiences, those who couldn't attend in person, more engaged with the live event? Because I know there have been some experiments in that area. Correct. I think uh, the NBA has done a fantastic job in that regard, especially during their bubble in Orlando. And I think that's something that we continue to look at and, uh, and learn from. Now that technology is going to play a huge role, similar to what I said when we're talking about the confessory concessions and the food and beverage, is there a way where basically you can get a much closer insight different camera angles, maybe different uh, audio options. Where you, you know, Can you imagine basically having little mics on, on soccer players' uniforms where you can hear what they're saying, maybe to the coach? I mean, these are all things that basically I'm sure everybody's looking into. And I think that's definitely going to enhance how we view sports in the future. Sporting arenas are used for more than just sport, of course. Many also double as music venues for the world's biggest acts. But live music, whether in sports stadiums, concert halls or smaller venues, has been another casualty of the pandemic. Lots of musicians rely on live performance for their income and lots of them have found themselves essentially out of work for the past year. Jamie Njoku Goodwin is the head of UK Music, an organisation that represents every aspect of the British music business. So there's been a real desperation, a real urge from people across the sector to be finding ways to reach audiences, to do their jobs, to be working. Many have looked for new ways, new means and opportunities. You've seen people doing concerts on Zoom and YouTube from their bedroom. You've seen people doing live stream, people trying to do more recorded, less live side of things. And I think there's been thousands of people that have been trying to find new ways of reaching new audiences, but also performing, because for musicians, it's what makes the job worthwhile. It's people doing what they love. And if we look at the numbers, how important a part of the music economy overall is live performance? So I always think rather than seeing it as a certain percentage or certain proportion, you I will see the music industry as a real ecosystem. It's not the case that you can just take one bit out and therefore everything works to the same extent, but just a little bit less. Actually, the loss of live music has impacted, obviously, musicians and crews because there's no live performances and many of them aren't going to be able to be working on that. But it also impacts songwriters and composers who aren't being commissioned for things in the way they used to be. It affects rights holders who aren't kind of getting the rights and the, the royalties from live performances. Record labels are often dependent on live performances to be promoting artists, to be breaking new artists. And so actually across the industry, the absence of live music has an absolute impact on pretty much everyone. When it's possible to open up venues and have live performances again, do you think we might see gigs where some people will be there in person for the social contact and other people are happy to just tune in and live stream it from home? 
Yeah, I think it's going to vary. Again, if you can be doing a live gig to a live audience, but also finding ways to to capture that experience and capture that moment and be delivering it through other channels as well. It's completely normal to have a live concert being watched on TV or listening to um, listening to a concert on, on the radio, but also having a live audience, but also having millions of people listening to it live. Perhaps we may also see live stream gigs as much more part of the overall delivery of, of concerts and live music. But when we do get back to a situation where you could be having live gigs again, particularly non-social distance ones, there'll be lots of people who will be thinking and probably keeping up doing many of the things that they've experimented with in the past year. One aspect of the live music scene that has exploded in popularity in recent decades is music festivals. In 1989, there was only really two festivals in the UK, which was Glastonbury Festival and Reading Festival. And Glastonbury then, I think, had about 12,000 people going to it, and Reading had 8,000 people going to it. Melvin Benn is director of Festival Republic, the company behind some of the world's most famous music festivals, including the Reading and Leeds Festivals, and other events including Download, Wireless and Latitude. Now within the festival environment, I think there's eight or 900 music festivals in the UK alone. So I know there have been some artists that have experimented with live streaming, so it's obviously not in-person performance, but they have been trying to recreate that connection to some extent. Have you seen anything like that that, um, that impressed you at all? And in fairness, I've done two or three things of that sort myself you know so download festival for instance is a is a heavy metal festival and it's got a wonderful audience and a really fantastic community and we did a, a three days of online and and streaming on the weekend in in june that it would have been on last year and and that was terrific and it was really great for the fans to be able to sort of participate and say hello to each other and all that sort of stuff but it's not the real thing it's not audience participation in that sense of it and I did the same for Wireless Festival and for Reading and Lees Festival were on TV and and radio with uh, you know with the BBC and there's been quite a number of things of that sort but I guess the two things are a it's nothing like live and B, they're just not income generating. And so therefore, as a way forward, it would be impossible to sort of build any business case on that at all. Certainly as festival producers, it would be just impossible to have a business case for it. Has the pandemic made you consider providing streaming access to festivals in future for people who aren't there in person? I think it's more likely in some context, but I don't think it's that likely in a festival context, really. And I think what will definitely emerge is the opportunity for individual artists to stream their performances at festivals or, you know, for the festivals to stream individual artists for an additional fee. But what you're buying then is effectively a a performance of an individual artist at the festival, you're not necessarily buying the experience of the festival in a way. And so when you think of a a festival like Reading or Leeds festivals with six, seven, eight stages or Latitude Festival with 20 stages or 30 stages or Glastonbury Festival with hundreds of stages, you can't really stream that event. You can only stream different aspects of it in a way but certainly there's an opportunity for individual artists to be streamed i think from festivals in the future and that's definitely something that we're looking at
Another category of live events that's been upended by the pandemic is academic and business conferences. Keynote speeches, presentations and panel discussions have all moved online, but there's much more to going to a conference than just sitting in an auditorium listening to the speakers on the stage. There's also the networking over coffee, the chance meetings with other attendees and the opportunity to escape from the usual routine. Conferences are a place where you get new information, but are also a way to get out of the office, to visit a different city, to meet new people. Monique van Dusseldorp is a conference industry veteran based in Amsterdam, with over 20 years' experience in organising events on media, technology and innovation. For the speakers, of course, it's about getting an audience and getting ideas out. And sponsors, same thing. Sponsors just want to be heard, they want to be seen. So the different elements of a conference of a live conference, you have very different reasons for people to go there. So given that conferences are doing all of these different jobs for for different people, what happens when you move them online? What have we learned in the past year? So conferences are actually a really big part of a new industry. When industries get together and being built with all kinds of new kinds of expertise, conferences play a big role. Now, when you go online with a conference, everything changes because sitting behind a desk watching a video stream is something so far removed from walking the streets of Paris, finding the metro, going to the venue, find new people, a completely different experience. So I think you shouldn't compare them. Well, it sounds as though you're saying that actually the conference part of conferences is a very small part of the actual conference and it's the the networking and the experience and the being in a different place that's a bigger part. Isn't that a slightly odd thing for a conference organiser to say? (laughs) Yes. Well, a conference is many different things. And what conference organisers who have gone online have found out is that very often there's a much bigger audience out there for their event than they would have thought. So whereas there were maybe a thousand people that could buy a ticket and book a hotel and take the plane or the train to go somewhere, there might be 20,000 people or 100,000 people that want to be part of the event, that are so interested in the topics that are being discussed or that that, that want to find out what people are talking about. Whereas going to a conference is a very specific set of experiences. Being part of a conference, being part of the community that surrounds that conference, that's something you can do online. And and that actually works really, really well online. What are some of the examples of things you've seen in the past year where conference organisers have taken particularly innovative or effective approaches? Well, there are very different ways that conference organisers try to recreate this feeling of urgency because that's what you want. I mean, one of the things that's been happening is that these huge video walls are happening. So ways to make those people that are in the event visible, not only to the speaker who might be in front of the screen or he might also be somewhere else, but also to each other. And to have the feeling that we're all in this together is actually really important. At the moment, the standard setup is pretty boring. I mean, it's a video screen, then next to it you have a chat screen, and if you're lucky there's a sort of a chat roulette where you can meet some random people in video. The idea of going around a space and finding people that are interesting is pretty hard in that setup. But what you now see happening is all kinds of design solutions. So you can have a 
people represented on screen, but the audio will get louder if you get closer to them and will get softer if you move your cursor and your avatar or your representation away from it. So you suddenly have more of a feeling like, okay, let's go over there and listen. Oh, it's not so interesting. I'll go over there and check the other side and see if there's somebody there I want to talk to. So little groups of people on the screen talking to each other. It's a design issue, but all kinds of people are now experimenting with what kind of design solutions you can offer for this you know, surprise conversation you want to run into. Not easy, but it works. Being able to attend events or listen to live-streamed gigs in the past year has opened up new possibilities. And while remote attendance of some events, at least for some people, seems likely to continue beyond the pandemic, there's also huge pent-up demand for being able to attend events the old-fashioned way, in person. So live events of all kinds could see a post-pandemic boom. But looking further ahead, what do our guests think live events will look like in a decade's time? And what mark, if any, will the pandemic have left on them? I asked Mohammed Khalifa Al-Mubarak of Abu Dhabi first. I think the visitor experience or the fan experience is going to be substantially enhanced. Technology is going to play a huge role and it's just going to basically create this massive immersive experience. It's going to be a mixture of what we have seen in e-gaming and a mixture of what we are seeing right now in some of these live events, but I think it is going to be mind-boggling. Events expert Monique van Dusseldorp. Companies will probably have a lot more people working from home. So how do you bring them together and make connections? You might want to take them out three days to a venue and organize something for them to make those connections again. So I do think there's a, a new kind of in-person event that will be realized. Jamie Njoku Goodwin of UK Music. As an industry, we've been focused on the idea that if another pandemic were to hit in 5, 10, 15 years' times, we've got protocols in place. We've got a blueprint for how we can do live events and live social contact in a safe way. And finally, Festival Republic's Melvin Benn on live festivals. But I think they will actually look remarkably similar. I think they will continue to have that edge of not being sanitised and that edge of not being homogenous and that edge of being completely individual and in the moment. Thank you to Melvin Benn, Jamie Njoku Goodwin, Monique van Dusseldorp, James Tozer and Mohammed Khalifa Al-Mubarak. And thank you for listening to The World Ahead. This episode was produced by Simon Jarvis and edited by Sandra Shmueli. You can find more future gazing analysis in our annual The World in 2021, which is on newsstands now and available to subscribers at economist.com slash worldin. And if you're not already a subscriber, you're missing out. Go to economist.com slash radio offer to subscribe. I'm Tom Standage in London. This is The Economist. Thank you.